He travels the world and scans the web to keep you up to date on the latest threats to the internet and to your cybersecurity. He brings you the latest on the fight against cyber terrorism, keeping you safe with the best cybersecurity information on the radio. It's Cybersecurity Today with John Bambanek. Good morning and welcome to Cybersecurity Today Radio with your host, John Bambanak, broadcasting out of AM820 News covering Tampa Bay and the West Coast and AM1060 News covering the Space Coast and Orlando. We have a great lineup for you today uh, talking about uh, some of the big cybersecurity stories of the week and some lessons you can uh, derive from them to protect yourself, your small business, your family, and stay safe online uh, and protect your own privacy. As always, you can connect with us on our website at cybersecuritytodayradio.com, on Facebook and Twitter at CybersecRadio, my personal Twitter account at Bambanek, B-A-M-B-E-N-E-K, and by, by email at johnbambanekradio at gmail.com, J-O-H-N-B-A-M-B-E-N-E-K, radio at gmail.com. We do take questions, so if there's something you want to hear on the air, a cybersecurity issue uh, you'd like to get information on, uh, do reach out. Uh, we do answer questions, uh, and certainly with our social social media segment that we run from time to time. Uh, we'll talk about those on air. Uh, and certainly you see any scams or interesting things you get in your email. We'll talk about those too and just do a little ad hoc research to see if we can find the miscreant behind the badness. So uh, that is one of my personal hobbies uh, is actually trying to get some of these guys uh, put into prison. So certainly uh, more information helps on that. And that's, uh, we'll come back to that point in a little bit uh, in the next segment uh, when we talk about Kaspersky. So wanted to get right into it. October is Cybersecurity Awareness Month. Uh, every October has been for a number of years anyway. Uh, I don't remember when it originally started, but it kind of designated it as a way to help normal people uh, understand some of the cybersecurity risks that are out there, what scams uh, and stunts people try to do to deceive you, to get your money, your private info, or, or worse, uh, and what you can do to protect yourself. So certainly, you know, a lot of people seem to think that it uh, a lot of people do think rather uh, cybersecurity is is hard but there's a lot of simple things people can do to protect themselves so we take this month uh, to talk through that and you know il uh, illustrate to people things they can do to protect themselves I know I've mentioned it on a few shows right always making sure you're updating your laptop your smartphone the applications on the phone uh, if you have uh, Java or Flash, you get pop-ups saying, hey, this piece of software needs to update itself. You know, make sure that it's legitimate, right? Uh, that it's pop-up. It's obvious when it's Windows, it says, hey, I want to I want to reboot your computer to apply updates. Do that. That is so critically important. Uh, we've talked a lot about Equifax, the way that hackers got into Equifax and stole over 145 million Americans' personal and private information uh, was a vulnerability in Apache Struts, their web server, that could have been fixed if they applied an update. Uh, for whatever reason, they didn't, uh, you know, and there's a lot of technical aspects of that doing uh, doing it on servers but your laptop uh, if you apply those updates you really eliminate the window where you're vulnerable to attacks so there's a lot of uh, attempts to compromise your computer out there you know whether it's uh, 
kind of online games for your kids or malicious advertising or things you click on email. A lot of that relies on having vulnerable software or having a vulnerable operating system on your machine almost exclusively. Really, there's two, only two ways that uh, malware predominantly gets on your machine. One is via email or phishing. Uh, we'll talk about that in a little bit when we uh, bring up North Korea. Or uh, via web-based exploit kits. You go to a website that's compromised that tries to do something to exploit your browser or Java or Flash or, or something else installed on your computer. Uh, many of those use uh, exploits that are two years old, right? That, that patches have been out for a long time. So if you keep your equipment patched, you are really eliminating a huge amount of the window uh, that most attackers use that most attackers use to compromise your machine. It, I can't emphasize the importance of that enough, is making sure you're always updated. Uh, you know, it's, uh, it's on par with having good antivirus software, if not more important. Uh, you know, make sure you get to Windows 10. You know, some of you may have a Windows XP box or 7 out there. Uh, try to get that updated to Windows 10. Uh, it's really a hardened operating system, really to make life difficult for hackers trying to get in. It's very important important uh, to do that, right? Because there's no one out there to protect consumers. It's actually a pet peeve that I have. I mean, I work for a security company. We sell product and services into big companies. But the reality is, is, you know, if you're a home user, you're pretty much left to your own devices. So like I said, patch that computer, make sure that uh, it's got all the critical updates. Uh, another uh, crucial item is to limit the amount of sensitive information you have on your computer. We've talked a lot about Kaspersky on the show. Uh, we, we will in the next segment also. Uh, but some of the news this week involves a, uh, a contractor to the NSA who brought highly classified materials to his home computer, uh, and then his antivirus at that point was Kaspersky, found that he had uh, we believe the NSA hacking tools, uh, which led to the chain of events to, to that information being stolen. The reality is, is that information should have never been put on his personal laptop in the first place. So um, limiting the amount of, uh, of information right on, on those things. If you've got a kid who likes playing online games of Minecraft, my kids are into Roblox right now. Uh, give them a dedicated computer, right? You know, go to Best Buy, buy $300 if you can. I don't like telling people to buy additional equipment. But, you know, kids are going to be surfing. They're going to get, uh, you know, uh, attract the kind of malware that's designed to compromise children, not for, for to compromise them, but really to get into your sensitive financial information, right? If there's a game out there for an eight-year-old, the eight-year-old's not the target. The eight-year-old parents are the target, and you have information and assets that criminals will want to get their hands on to. So uh, that would be a very important thing to do also. Uh, if you just tuned in, you're listening to Cybersecurity Today Radio with your host, John Bambanak, talking about uh, Cybersecurity Awareness Month. So uh, hopefully uh, your business or small business is uh, taking some steps, talking about security awareness. Uh, if it's not, you're in a position to, to point others to resources, things that you're looking to, to learn more. Uh, StopThinkConnect.org uh, is something put on by the Anti-Phishing Working Group. Uh, I mentioned you know a few minutes ago, email is a big lure to get people to compromise yourself. Uh, famously, John Podesta's emails during the election last year was all based on 
on uh, a phishing attack or just a deceptive email. But go to Stop, Think, Connect. Uh, it's a good resource to teach people how to stay safe online, how to handle email and some of these scams coming in. But basically, it comes down to uh, making sure you're paying attention, looking for uh, what I call subtle signs of deception, right? In the case of John Podesta's email hack. Hey, this is a Google password reset fish. If you would have looked uh, where it was actually pointed, you would see that it wasn't to accounts.google.com. It was to something else entirely. Um, sometimes the deception is subtle. Sometimes it's fairly obvious. But if you're looking, you're paying attention, you have the tools to prevent, prevent yourself from becoming a victim. So it's uh, so very important to do that, right? Take the time to see what is uh, trying, uh, what the email is purporting to get you to do, where it's pointed, so on and so forth. Uh, to give you a personal example of something not an email, uh, it was a couple weeks ago, I think, I got a call to my cell phone uh, from somebody with clearly not an American accent saying, hey, I'm calling for Microsoft tech support. There's a problem with your computer, blah, 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 blah. You know, Microsoft doesn't call you out of the blue. Um, Microsoft doesn't talk to consumers. You've got to pay real money for actual support from Microsoft. And the same for Google and Twitter and Facebook and so on and so forth, right? So there's this guy on the phone saying, hey, and ultimately he's trying to say, oh, let me log into your computer. You give me access with, you know, remote desktop or whatever. He's now on the computer. He can install stuff. And it's all based on low rent deception, right? So be wary of those kind of scams. I had a little fun at this caller's expense, you know, saying, hey, you know, does anyone ever fall for this? And oh, by the way, in about 30 seconds, I'm going to have this call traced. And he hung up quite quickly. But obviously, be wary. You know, it's not a question of being paranoid or per se. There are people out to get you. Uh, there's a lot of things you can do to stay safe online. Do those. Enjoy the internet, the resources, getting information, uh, communicating with friends and family, absolutely. But make sure you're doing it in a safe way. So we're going to take a short break, bring on Julio Rivera to talk about the latest uh, about Kaspersky antivirus and some of the issues that they're facing. So stay tuned for that. We will be right back. Stay tuned for more from Bambanek on cybersecurity. This is Cybersecurity Today with John Bambanek. And welcome back. You've tuned into Cybersecurity Today Radio with your host, John Bambanek. Joining me now is Julio Rivera, the editorial director for Reactionary Times and host of Reactionary Times TV. Welcome to the program, Julio. Hey, thank you so much for having me on. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. So, uh, We've talked in the past couple of weeks uh, about Kaspersky antivirus, uh, some of the controversy around them. Uh, you know, they do make a good antivirus product, but uh, it can be used in some interesting ways. And there's uh, there was some uh, developments this week, exactly what the nature uh, of the activities that led to the United States government, particularly signaling out Kaspersky. So uh, I'd like to ask you about that. You know, what have you been hearing about uh, Kaspersky and what's kind of the news that's been breaking this week? Well, a lot of interesting things. Now, this goes back, um, actually, you know, Rob Joyce, which is from the cyber uh, security chief, um, a couple of, couple, about a month and a half to two months ago, um, actually issued a statement uh, when he was interviewed by CBS, um, uh, Jeff, uh, Jeff Peake from uh, CBS, stating that he wouldn't suggest that anybody in his family actually use Kaspersky software. 
Now, uh, that was followed up uh, by a directive uh, by the United States government uh, to go ahead. And they actually, um, this goes, is more recent, uh, just a couple of weeks ago, um, they issued a directive that all uh, federal agencies have to uh, actually scan their systems to see if there's any computers that are using Kaspersky software. And if so, mm-hmm. they have a 90-day window to remove it. Um, you know, obviously, this is all stems from the fact that, you know, Eugene Kaspersky, the founder of Kaspersky Labs, is basically, you know, a Russian oligarch with close ties to the Kremlin. Um, you know, he was uh, trained at a KGB uh, cryptography school, uh, and it's always been thought, you know, within the community that um, because of the way that Russian law is written, that um, Kaspersky and their vast database of about 400 million users globally uh, could be tapped uh, for, uh, you know, intelligence purposes. Now, this was actually confirmed recently uh, by an Israeli intelligence agency Mm -hmm. who actually uh, tapped or actually hacked uh, Kaspersky's databases. And what they found was, um, this is very interesting, Basically, what's going on right now is, and this has to have been done with the knowledge of the company, um, they were actually using these broad search terms like top secret, mm-hmm. and the, as well as the name of some of the United States intelligence agencies uh, and scanning basically uh, for data, you know, and, and actually it was confirmed that uh, an NSA contractor's laptop that had Kaspersky software in it had actually been hacked and that, you know, they were, they were basically fishing for information uh, intelligence-wise. And I think what people fail to see here is, you know, anybody that understands what it goes into, what goes into, um, you know, developing this anti-malware, anti-spyware, anti-virus software, it's such a large cost. It's uh, so next to impossible you know, in like, let's say a free market system, mm-hmm. you know, to, to really be able to fund that um, to, and, and to get to such a, a giant level like Kaspersky. Kaspersky, I believe, is the ninth best-selling anti-malware, anti-virus software in the world. And, um, you know, you can't really do that without uh, state funding. So, I, honestly, I believe that Kaspersky is in cahoots with, you know, Vladimir Putin and the Kremlin in developing this software and putting it out there globally and, you know, to market it to that level where you become so big that you have such a vast database of users, you know, you can't really do that without Mm -hmm. government help. I think that the reason why the government is helping is because they want access to that information. They want to spy on users globally. Mm -hmm. Well, and as an interesting side, every antivirus company does have the ability to search and get data from machines. They just do it in very targeted ways of saying, hey, find me copies of this malware, right? You know, things that we, you know, we don't really mind, right? You know, hey, if there's malware on my machine, I don't mind that security company is sending it to somebody like me to research it. And some of the search terms you were talking about, you know, looking for security markings on documents. I've done similar searches. I guess the difference in my case is that I immediately took it to the FBI and says, you guys got a problem because there's documents that are classified, you know, getting into the wild. So go figure that out, fellas. Uh, So, I mean, a lot of us do searches like this. 
um, you know, but there's context around it, right? In my case, I wasn't I wasn't searching for classified Russian documents. I was looking for classified American ones, just as, as academic research, uh, and then gave that data immediately to the FBI. But all antivirus uh, does bring data back, um, and it's something we talk about on the program a lot. Is you know we install all these programs. Some of them are low cost or free. Some of them are money. Um, Windows 10, right? There's a lot of information that goes from your machine uh, back into a database somewhere is, is taking the time to figure out what that is and how that could be used. Uh, in this case, uh, you know, there, there, there are certainly strong indications it was used for uh, foreign intelligence collection. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And it's funny, too, because Kaspersky winds up issuing this statement. Um, this is their actually official statement that they released yesterday. Kaspersky Lab was not involved in and does not possess any knowledge of the situation in question. And the company reiterates its willingness to work alongside U.S. authorities to address any concerns they may have about its products as well as its systems. That sounds a lot to me like I did not have sexual relations with that (laughs) woman. I mean, you know, how believable, quite frankly, is that? To me, it's really a a joke. I mean, the Chinese uh, government had actually banned the use of Kaspersky products, you know, uh, way before the United States did. So, you know, mm-hmm. the Chinese government, and you know that they're, you know, to a certain extent we can call them a bad actor on, on you know, when it comes to the cyber intelligence and cyber hacking stuff. I mean, the majority of the attacks that we get globally do generally come from either Russia. China is a, a big culprit in that as well. So, I mean, China figured it out a long time ago, and they disallowed Kaspersky use. Um, you know, but it's really scary. I mean, I think these are a lot of the failures that took place, you know, in the previous administration. Mm-hmm. You know, Trump is kind of inheriting all these problems now. And we're actually taking the deeper look into it. And it, it is good now that, you know, within 90 days, we're going to, well, I believe at this point, somewhere around uh, about 100 days, based on when they issued the initial uh, directive, um, you know, we're going to have Kaspersky at least out of, the federal government. Now, you know, there's still a lot of state and local governments. Um, you know, I, I, there hasn't been, I think, enough uh, addressing or, or good enough addressing of that. You know, we, we need to make sure that it's off basically anything that has to do with the government. And I think that the regular user should be concerned as well. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that the average American should not be using any product that's not you know, um, you know, produced in, in, you know, by an American company, because they, they're, they're really, the, the problem is they're beyond recourse. When you're talking about an international company, you know, basically, uh, you know, spying on you or stealing your information or anything like that, how do you really go after them? Where's the accountability, you know, and, and how, do you, how do you hold them accountable? Sure, sure. No, that's, that makes sense. You make some great points there. Coming to the end of our segment, so really uh, wanted to thank you, uh, Julio, for being on. You've been listening to Julio Rivera, uh, Editorial Director of Reactionary Times and host of Reactionary Times TV. Thank you for joining us today. Well, it was an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much, and have a great day. All right, you too. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. You're listening to Cybersecurity Today Radio with your host, John Bamberg. Scan your computer, but don't scan the dial. Stay right here. John Bambadek will be right back. You're back with Bambadek on cybersecurity. 
Welcome back to Cybersecurity Today Radio with your host, John Bambanek. Previous segment, again, we talked about Kaspersky with Julio Rivera. Uh, you know, certainly uh, a lot of developments and news to be had there uh, as, as somebody who has some uh, colleagues and friends that work for Kaspersky. And certainly in the industry, we're paying a lot of attention to it. You know, and as certainly uh, with all the heightened concern about Russia, I think that's flavoring some of what's going on. Uh, but certainly the, the, the latest report that uh, somebody with access to Kaspersky was proactively searching for class documents or the like certainly uh, is certainly the first piece of real tangible stuff to be concerned about a lot of stuff was just hey this is Russia they could be pressed into service uh, so on and so forth there's a lot of speculation here there's some actual concrete data uh, I don't know if I would ever refer to Eugene Kaspersky as an oligarch uh, he's, he's somebody who did uh, uh, go through uh, in a, a KGB school but most of their CS program computer science programs are uh, uh, and then certainly the Russian government does a lot uh, to encourage cybersecurity training uh, that we could take lessons from. I've been there twice to security conferences to speak and, and uh, do some information sharing with others. Um, it's one of the best conferences and most amazing setups in the world. I mean, almost every kind of hacking conference will have capture the flags or whatever. There they set up uh, an actual working of model trains to mimic a subway system uh, with industrial control systems and then do uh, who can compromise that. Uh, so uh, they have hacking of ATM machines and cellular networks, but they set up uh, effective, I mean, simulations of these kind of environments uh, and encourage people to sit there and, hey, try, experiment, learn how things can go bad uh, and and certainly there's the latitude to do that and it's just a lot of great setup that they had and I was very impressed every time that I've gone that they're really teaching the next generation uh, a lot of offensive uh, offensive stuff uh, ostensibly one to secure Russian infrastructure but those skills can be repurposed much like uh, my skills could be repurposed for nefarious purposes anyway so uh, they spend a lot of effort and time uh, and create a lot of talent as a result and some of those people you know aren't ultimately get involved in cybercrime. Uh, but certainly, I think uh, culturally, there's some things that we can learn about cybersecurity training and education uh, that uh, we can apply here in the United States. So that being said, kind of segues to a next news article uh, report out that recently 105,000 IT and IT security jobs have been added to the economy. A lot of growth in that sector. I know we've talked about it a lot that there's an immense growth in the number of jobs and in part because there's a huge amount of work that needs to be done uh, and there's not enough people to do it. It is an effectively negative uh, employment uh, industry. So uh, I know uh, for a wide variety of reasons, right? I'll, I'll have a job for as long as I want to work. Um, that's not true in a lot of industries. So people thinking about getting into this industry certainly take advantage of uh, good cybersecurity programs out there uh, for training uh, to get into that first job. But really what sets uh, sets you apart, right, is, is your ability to solve problems, experiment, tinker, find ways around controls, find ways to detect that and uh, detect security breaches. So I know when I interview people, I'm looking uh, not for credentials as much as, okay, now what have you done? Uh, what have you learned? Certainly, you know, 
that first job out of college, right? The credential matters, but not so much uh, after that. It's it's what you've done, and I look for intellectual curiosity. So, I mean, if you're looking for uh, something for your children or yourself to get into to, to do a career change, uh, those are the kind of things uh, that I look for. Uh, and certainly, I teach in a cybersecurity program at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. Uh, you know, if you get tired of that warm and beautiful Florida weather and want to experience what Midwestern weather looks like, I encourage you to uh, go check out our program. Uh, but I do believe USF and a couple of other uh, schools down in Florida have cybersecurity programs also. University of Maryland, uh, Sirius at uh, Purdue University in Indiana. Uh, Berkeley has some stuff. There's, there's a lot of programs out there uh, if that's what you want to get into. Because again, right, there's, there's, there's a lot of jobs out there that need doing. Uh, not enough people doing it. Uh, and and really, I think we should be more fostering cybersecurity education and programs generally so that uh, when people just enter the workforce, they're savvy, they're aware, uh, they don't make the same mistakes. Uh, they can speak intelligently about, oh, hey, we need a, an accounting application, but really we should prevent against these kind of attacks, I think would be immensely vulner uh, valuable. And certainly, uh, you know, there's jobs out there uh, ready, uh, ready for the taking and they're high paying jobs, too. If you just tuned in, you're listening to Cybersecurity Today Radio with your host, John Bamanek. That segues into another article uh, saying, what are chief financial officers doing about cybersecurity? When we think about cybersecurity, we think of chief information officer, chief security officer, so on. This article uh, focuses on uh, chief financial officers and how uh, cybersecurity is now being viewed as a real uh, economic factor in a business's uh, long-term uh, financial health. So uh, this has now become uh, an actual financial info uh, uh, influence, and I think that's a good development in a sense, uh, because it's always been, oh, somebody hacks something, eh, the IT guys fix it, no real, no real problem. But when you look at WannaCry and NotPetya, NotPetya uh, specifically, that big worm outbreak that took down entire organizations, Maersk, the global shipping company, wrote off a $300 million write-off, a $300 million loss based on their infection with that one piece of malware, one campaign. FedEx, the same thing, a $300 million loss, right? These are big numbers that says, hey, you know, we need to deal with this problem. And unfortunately for businesses and enterprises, unless you can describe things in those terms, they tend not to be dealt with accordingly, right? You know, if I can't show you a financial impact plus or minus, then, you know, the question is, is why does it really matter? You know, you can comment comment on why that's a good or a bad thing. It just is the thing. That's the world we live in. Uh, so having those numbers to say, hey, you know what? Uh, you know, we do need to take this seriously because $300 million loss or any number of things. So I'm reminded of, of an anecdote I heard once. Somebody asked a chief security officer, you know, of a major company, how does he sleep at night? Responds, I sleep like a baby. I wake up every hour screaming. Uh, I don't wake up every hour screaming. You know, I, I, I sleep. I sleep decent enough. But the threat is real. There's real impacts. There's real potential for losses. Right. So I'm sure that many of you are not, uh, you know, executive level employees of Fortune 500 firms listening to this program. But you may be operating a small business. Uh, you know, hiring five people or ten people. It may be a law office, uh, a small shop, whatever. You've got equipment uh, and computers that you rely on, even things that you might not necessarily think are computers that could lead to real impacts if those were compromised, right? There's a lot of malware out there for cash register fraud, uh, or to steal credit cards 
cards from point of sale devices. Many of those, even though they don't look like a Windows machine, are running Windows, often Windows XP, which if you listen to this program, you know is not really secure anymore. Uh, and if people are stealing credit cards from you at your machine, right, you've got a potential loss of a business, but you probably can't deal with, oh, the bank says uh, it cost me $50,000 to reissue a thousand credit cards lost uh, in your shop, so you owe me $50,000 plus my lawyers. You may not be able to absorb that loss. So it's very important to figure out what critical information you have, what you process, and how it can be best secured, uh, you know, and a, a reasonable price point, right? You're not going to spend a quarter million dollars to secure things, but you certainly could say, hey, POS device, let me see your PCI certification. What are you doing to make sure that this device is secure? If you operate a website, what are you doing to make sure that personal information is not being stolen? Many website software uh, and databases have the ability to encrypt data that will protect it to a degree against compromise, right? You know, does the firm doing your website implementing those kind of steps? So certainly keep in mind of some of those things that uh, we're talking about in Cybersecurity Awareness Month, but apply that to your small business because if you're a shop of two, three, five, ten people, you have just as much to worry about as somebody else and uh, probably a less ability to weather a loss if something bad happened. So no one's going to protect you but yourself. So stay vigilant, be aware, uh, and making sure you're asking the right questions of your providers. So we're going to take a short break right here. You're listening to Cybersecurity Today Radio with your host, John Bambanek, and we will be right back after this short break. You're listening to John Bambanek, the most trusted name in cybersecurity. You're back with Bambanek on cybersecurity. And welcome back. You've tuned in to Cybersecurity Today Radio with your host, John Bambanek. Joining me now from our digital partner, Cyberscoop.com, is Chris Bing. Welcome back to the show, Chris. Thanks for having me, John. So in this segment of what is North Korea doing that's naughty uh, today, uh, you guys had some interesting reporting about uh, North Korea and some potential breaches of uh, energy utility companies uh, here in the United States. Uh, you know, why don't you go tell us uh, you know, what you found? Yeah, that's right. So a known uh, advanced persistence threat that is typically associated with North Korea was recently found to be sending a bunch of phishing emails to um, U.S. Uh, industrial control system companies, primarily U.S. energy companies. And um, there was one known breach that we're aware of as part of this campaign, but that breach, it only occurred on the business or corporate network of that company. Um, it was an energy company, and the hack did not go so far as to actually impact or influence physical systems. So what it showed basically was that, you know, North Korea is upping the ante. They're not typically associated with attacking U.S. critical infrastructure, but now they are at least collecting information, trying to learn more about how our energy grid works. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and kind of the backstory, right? We, we all know that uh, our president and uh, their leader have been engaged in a heated war of words on Twitter uh, and uh, tensions to a degree are escalating. So it, it, it shows that 
you know, assuming the attribution is correct, I have no reason to suspect it's not, but uh, the North Koreans are looking at interesting ways to retaliate and, you know, turning off, turning off the power lights, so to speak, uh, is one way to do that. Yeah, definitely. Whenever you have um, rising geopolitical tension, it's pretty natural for nation states to look to cyber as a way to gather information mm -hmm. and to make themselves more confident when it comes to policy decisions. No, no, that's definitely true. We've seen that in Eastern Europe. Uh, and that actually brings kind of a, a, a related case to mind. Uh, usually when talking about breaches of power companies, they say, hey, business network, operational network, where the actual control systems are. Uh, mm -hmm. But probably the most recent case of an electrical power grid hacking uh, was in Ukraine Christmas, a little less than two years ago, I believe, uh, where hackers using black energy, which is typically associated with crime, but for other reasons, they thought that was uh, nation-inspired activity, uh, right. used that malware to get into the, the business network, but found a machine that was able to control the infrastructure itself. So you had on one hand a machine where somebody could you look at Facebook and do whatever, uh, but they could also open up an application to start messing with transformers or whatever. I don't know the precise equipment that it was. So, I mean, there is generally a boundary between business networks and operational networks, at least in the U.S. It's a fairly hard boundary, but you get to other parts of the world, and that's less true, certainly in Eastern Europe, uh, there's a lot going on in, in Latin America and South America right now, actually, uh, on that. Uh, but it all comes down to usually, like I said, this, this phishing thing, all fake emails that we see every day. Well, uh, you know, intelligence agencies and uh, those engaged in nation state activity using the same tactic, not to steal information, but to, in essence, flick the lights. As long as it's effective, they're going to keep using it. And uh, in this case, as, as you rightfully mentioned, it was... Uh, isolated to the, the business or, or corporate network, not the operational network. And, and that's important, obviously, because it's one thing to break into a, an accounting mm -hmm. computer or a computer that's used by some sort of, um, you know, someone on the, on the business or sales side. But it's another thing to actually break into the computer of an operator that can control uh, transformers, can control data transfer within the electrical grid. Because once we get to that side, like we did in the, in the Ukraine case, mm -hmm. hackers actually had the capability to shut the lights off. Um, it, actually, in a very large area just north of Ukraine. Yeah, no. North so, of I mean, Kiev. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, yeah, it was Christmas, if, if I recall, or two days before Christmas. Mm -hmm. um, uh, our Christmas, not their Christmas. I think Orthodox Christmas was a week later that year, but it's not a good time of the year uh, in northern Ukraine to not have power. I mean, lights is one exactly. thing, but, you know, uh, unless you've got a stockpile of firewood and a wood-burning stone in your house, it's going to be a bad day, so... Uh, you know, most of the country here, yeah, we could probably get without power for a little while for in terms of survivability. But, you know, you wait until the the more inhospitable times of the year in the United States. You know, that's the kind of thing that could lead to a body count. Definitely, definitely. And I think, you know, another, another part of this story really is that um, the way this got out, the way that this intelligence got out is mm -hmm. that two separate, at least two separate private cybersecurity companies had written reports on this activity. They were aware that a North Korean hacking group was, was sending these phishing emails and there was at least one breach. And it was um, relayed or, or sent to DHS, uh, primarily uh, DHS ICS CERT, 
mm-hmm. uh, the industrial control systems uh, computer emergency response team. And, you know, a, a number of media outlets have sort of been hovering around this story for the last few weeks. And ultimately it, it came out, but I think one of the, one of the underlying themes here is that the private sector has really good intelligence when it comes to identifying these threats. And uh, oftentimes that intelligence is actually better than what the government has on hand, at least unclassified. So um, yeah, it's, you know, it shows, I think more broadly how looming and, and rising geopolitical tension has an impact in cyberspace. No, no, I think that's absolutely true. And I think you mentioned it, you know, an interesting anecdote, I think most people don't realize. I mean, I do, because it's exactly my world. And in many ways, I do have better intelligence than DHS or my peers uh, in very specific threats, because you can't have the NSA, for instance, tracking cybercrime, unless the stakes are really high. Um, and right. most of the things that we care about are critical infrastructure, a rather uh, unique feature is how much of the United States are critical infrastructures in the hands of the private sector. Um, you know, there are a couple of small, you know, power energy utilities that are local government run, you know, but it's not like the Department of Energy runs the power grid, right? They, they, I mean, they set rules and, and actually have a lot of responsibility over uh, nuclear materials, but um, you know, so unless we're embedding, you know, the NSA at, you know, Ameren is a power company where I'm from, right? I, whatever it is in DC, you know, they rely on the private sector to basically tell them what's going on, uh, and, and work together to, to figure out these nation state threats because the private industry isn't well suited to sit there and go toe to toe by and large against, uh, intelligence agencies and North Korea less so, but if it were Russia or China or, Israel or, uh, you know, pick any number of a half dozen sophisticated, you know, intelligence agencies who engage in offensive work, that's, uh, it'd be hard for a private organization to stand up to that. Yeah. And right now, obviously, as, as you mentioned, uh, a large majority of critical structures owned by the private sector. And so there's this tap dance between them working with the government, but they don't want to have the government directly in their systems continuously. And so, often they hire contractors or large cybersecurity firms to watch these networks and then they relay back whatever information they think is relevant to the government, but the government doesn't have the, the precedence to just sit on their networks and watch traffic flow through because they are private entities. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I mean, there's a lot of the fourth amendment issues and, and a lot of, a lot of difficulties that in essence are self-imposed, but they're self-imposed for a good reason. I kind of like the fourth amendment. You know, I don't think we should get rid of it just just to make cybersecurity better. Uh, but, you know, that's why there's a lot of conversation about cooperation and sharing and when things don't go well, why why it matters uh, and why it has negative impact. Exactly. Exactly. So, um, you know, so like I said, a great story about North Korea, right, and, and what they're doing. And, and certainly there has been a lot of intention about what could be done with the power grid, um, you know, for reference, right, probably the best case of destruction of ICS, industrial control systems, is, is something the United States, in fact, did. Uh, we don't admit it officially, right, but with Stuxnet when, uh, I think it was six, seven years ago now, um, right. Back when we were trying to deal with Iranian uh, nuclear program, uh, we created a, uh, you know, a piece of malware uh, that was multi-stage to get past this. Okay, we're going to share it broadly. Okay, you're in 
this facility. All right, now we're going to install this payload. Oh, hey, you've got device drivers for this particular Siemens PLC that we know is uh, being used to control the centrifuges uh, in the Natanz uh, nuclear facility. Oh, okay, now we're going to do this. Uh, and it had a great effect in terms of uh, setting them back a good a good bit of time uh, with their nuclear program, you know. But uh, at a certain point, our hands aren't particularly clean. Uh, I have no problem that we did that, right? I I don't think Iran should have nuclear weapons, you know. But that said, you know, we can't turn around and having done it the first time very successfully and publicly, and then turn around and say others can't do it to us. Thank you for being with us, Chris. Uh, you know, the, check out some more of the great content uh, from Chris and his fellow writers at uh, cyberscoop.com. So thank you for being with us, Chris. Thanks, John. That brings us to the end of our hour together. Uh, a lot of great interviews and content. Hope you got something out of it. You've been listening to Cybersecurity Today Radio with your host, John Bambanek. Have a great rest of your day.